You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Okay, so good afternoon. So this week we're going to be concluding the book of Genesis, Parshas Vayichi, where we're going to read about where Yaakov blesses his sons, and they all come to him to get their blessings right before his passing. He also requests of Yosef to bury him in the land of Israel, not in the land of Egypt. An entire Torah reading tells us about the passing of Jacob, the passing of Joseph, and the Jewish people's essential enslavement, which begins in the week of next week in the book of Exodus. But looking at the entire book of Genesis as a whole, and as we're going to explore today, we'll look more at the idea of the whole book of Genesis, what it is teaching us, what is it telling us, as a seemingly of a history of the Jewish people, what is it there to tell us? But let's reframe it and look at it in the context of the current issues and current events that are going on in the world, primarily when we talk about the land of Israel. And one of the things that many people ask the question when it comes to the land of Israel is, you know, what makes the land of Israel ours? Is it really ours? Before 1948, there were Arabs living in the land of Israel. They were living in most of the land. And in the past few hundred years, with the Jewish people buying agriculture, some parcels were bought, some of the Jewish, some of the Arabs left. And how is it, and what makes the land of Israel ours throughout, and then what makes it ours, and what makes it the Jewish inherent right to the land of Israel? Now, an average person looking at the story will say, well, well, just because you lived there 2,000 years ago, what does that make it yours? The Indians were living in America before the Americans as the land of uh, the United States as America belonged to the Indians, or the Mexicans were in Texas and California. Do we say that we have to give back Mexico to the, to, do we give back to, do we give back um, California and Texas to the Mexicans, or just because that's the way of the land, when a country conquers another country, it becomes theirs, and therefore by conquest, the land becomes whoever the in country that now the occupying country. Or do we always call them occupying countries because inherently or indigenous uh, first uh, people that were living there. But even if we're going to say about conquering the land, what makes the land ours? Number one, if we're going to start saying, well, because in 1948 the United Nations separated the League of Nations, the separation of lands, and gave Israel this part and this part, that part. Then what about the borders of 1967, the West Bank and the Gaza, Jerusalem, the old city, which was only came along in 1967. And then if you want to go according to the 242 Charter of the United Nations and all the other nonsense that the United Nations said over the past years, which were all about condemning Israel, are we also going to have to listen to that? So the United Nations cannot be the one to determine that the land of Israel belongs to the Jewish people, or else we're going to be stuck in a quagmire, which if we're going to follow the United Nations theory, then maybe part of Israel shouldn't belong to Israel. And this is something which is an ongoing debate, and something which has to be discussed, And in the context of this week's Torah reading, and in the context of the whole entire book of Genesis, we can really see what the answer to this question is. As this week we are concluding the book of Genesis, and in this week we come to talk about finishing 12 Torah readings, which are talking about the history of the Jewish, the history of the universe, the history of the Jewish people, the history of mankind, and while we look at the entire Torah, as the word Torah comes to tell us from the word Hora'ah, which is a lesson, what are these first 14 sections of the Torah actually teaching us? 
when we're talking about historically about Esau, Jacob, Joseph, they're all beautiful Bible stories. And maybe they're just that, Bible stories. But we know that if you look in the Torah, and we look at the five books of Moses especially, and you take any Torah in the holy, in the synagogue, is holy, it's sacred. If there's one letter missing from the name of Esau, or Yishmael, or any person, for that matter, that's mentioned in the book of Genesis, it's just as important as any one of the Ten Commandments and would make the entire Torah invalid. So what is so sacred about these stories that we're reading about in the first 12 sections of the Torah, which are seemingly just that, stories? And how is that the same, that it should carry the same level of holiness as the rest of the four books of the Torah, which talk about the laws and the, prop- and the obligations that the Jewish people have? especially as we mentioned before, the concept of the Torah is that it is a commandment of the Jewish people to follow. There's a lesson, there's a story, not only a story, but the story brings about an entire commandment or obligation for the Jewish people to follow for future generations. Why is there a need that the Torah should begin with the first 12 sections telling us about the story of mankind, the story of the Jewish people? What does this actually affect us in our day-to-day life? And if we were interested to know about the history of the Jewish people. There's already the Book of Chronicles, which is part of the other books of the Torah, which is part of the books of prophets and scriptures and so on, where the Book of Chronicles details about the history, if you want to call it, that's why it's called the Book of Chronicles, telling us the history of the Jewish people. And we know that the Book of Chronicles does not have the same level of importance as the Torah. The Torah is number one that's read every single week in the synagogue. The Torah has to be has many different obligations, how it has to be written, what obligations, how it's to be stored, where it's kept, and all the different details of, of the holiness of the Torah. And seemingly we're equating the same holiness about the stories of our forefathers and of mankind and of creation of the universe as with the rest of the laws of the Torah of the other four books. And the question is, why, how do these two connect, and what is the connection of the two of them? And if we want to know about their stories, there could have been a separate book to tell us about their stories and know about Isaac, Ishmael, Esau, Jacob. Why is there a whole book of seemingly of the important parts of the Torah, which is about the lessons and the teachings of the Jewish people, have to be enumerated in this separate book? And we'll begin by with the first Rashi on the Torah, which is in the book of Genesis, and we discussed this many times, but today we'll reiterate it and look at it from another angle, and also look at it from a view of Nachmanides as well. Rashi in the first Torah reading, in the first words of the Torah, Rashi begins by saying, really the Torah should have started from the book of Exodus in the third section where it begins with the laws pertaining the Jewish calendar. That's the first mitzvah given to the Jewish people. However, there's a reason why God started with the creation of the universe. One of the commentators on Rashi explained this and say as follows. He says, how is it that the Torah as we mentioned before, which is all about the commandments. The Torah, which is all about telling us the actions that we need to do. The Torah that was written by Moses. The Torah that was written for the Jewish people, that they should know the commandments that they should do. And if the Torah would only have in it four sections, I couldn't use this Torah in the synagogue on Shabbat. What does the Torah tell me? It starts off with the creation of the universe. Why doesn't it start off with the first mitzvah? That's Rashi's question. Maimonides even takes it a step further. Maimonides says, you will find some mitzvahs mentioned in the book of Genesis. For example, circumcision. 
is mentioned in the book of Genesis where Abraham has a circumcision. Another mitzvah we read just a few weeks ago about not eating from the thigh, the sinew of the thigh, because Jacob was hit by the angel of Esau on his thigh. So therefore, in an animal, we don't eat from something called the gid hanasha, the sinews that are in the thigh. That's also a mitzvah mentioned in the book of Genesis. But Maimonides says something very fascinating. That any of those mitzvahs that are already mentioned in the book of Genesis are mentioned again later after the Jewish people were given the Torah at Mount Sinai as a Jewish people. Because those were only given to individuals, while the rest of all the mitzvahs that we need to keep today, we only keep them because it was given to the Jewish people on Mount Sinai. Not because of the stories of Abraham and Jacob, which makes the question even stronger. What do I need to hold the entire book of Genesis, even all the stories, and the stories that have lessons, and the stories that have mitzvot upon them, if I don't learn anything from them? I only know them from when after it was given to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. What's the need to mention it? Why then mention even these commandments? Why mention the stories about those commandments if we only learn about them from what the, from what the Jewish people were given at Mount Sinai? Nachmanides makes, it even, makes the question even stronger. Nachmanides says, if you look in the Ten Commandments, God says, why should you observe the Sabbath? Because six days of the world I create, six days it took me to create the world, on the seventh day I rested. Nachmanides explains and says that the Torah enumerates already and gives you a short version that God created the universe. That means in the Ten Commandments, God mentions in a shorthand version that he created the universe. Then why do I need the whole entire book of Genesis to tell me the details of how he created in seven days and what he created in each day and all the generations that came that know in the ark and the flood and all these things? Seemingly, what's it necessary for? What do I need that for? What's the point of it? The question even gets bigger. When we look at the entire book of Genesis as something uniquely different than the rest of the Torah. The Jewish people are known that we have the Torah is very different than every other nation or religion. The very fact that the way we were given the Torah is so different than any other religion in the universe. Every other religion in the universe is one person or two people or three people who concocted whatever the religion was. They are the ones that got the message from God. God got the prophet or whether it's Christians that Jesus didn't know and so on. Each one claims, but it all boils down to a testimony of one or two people. And believe it or don't believe it, that's the way it happened. The only religion that millions of people witnessed the exact same thing and they passed it down from their children to their children to their children until we have it today is Judaism. That means every other religion is basically hearsay. Somebody told it, you believe it, don't believe it. The only religion that we ourselves have seen it, that means we were witness to the actual event that happened on Sinai, Three million people stood at Mount Sinai and witnessed God telling them, I am God, your God, heard the Ten Commandments. Three million people were witness to the teachings of Moses, witnessed the crossing of the sea, the exodus of Egypt. Undeniable fact. And they taught that to their children, who taught it to their children, that what you want to call scientific fact, where so many people have actually proven to be there. It wasn't hearsay. What part of the Torah is the only hearsay? The book of Genesis. Moses on Mount Sinai came down with the book of with the Torah, taught it to the Jewish people, was told by God to inscribe the book of Genesis in it. 
That means seemingly in contrast, if you want to talk about the revelations that happened or the stories of the book of Genesis was Moses, what he told to the Jewish people, seemingly hearsay. They all didn't witness it, only from the exodus of Egypt or pains in Egypt. They witnessed being in Egypt. They asked, of course, how did I get to Egypt? Was their parents told them all X, Y, and Z, how they got to Egypt? But the actual discussions that are mentioned in the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and so on are seemingly, if you want to call it, individuals who passed down a story from one to the next and then Moses transcribed it in the Torah. And God told him to write it down. The very fact that the Ten Commandments begins with the realization of the words, I am God who has taken you out of Egypt. And as many ask, why doesn't God say, if God wants to put on his resume that he'd accomplish something, that the Jewish people should believe in him, don't you think that creating the universe is something of more of an accomplishment than taking the Jewish people out of Egypt? Why does God begin the Ten Commandments by saying, I am God who took you out of Egypt? He could have said, I am God who created heaven and earth. The Kuzari explains, because when God tells us, I am God who took you out of Egypt, and not that he created the universe, is because he's telling the people, you were able to identify with the going out of Egypt because you witnessed it. Creating of heaven and earth is a belief that you either you do or you don't believe in. It's only something that you notice, something that you see, you can't attack, you can't negate. I am God who took you out of Egypt has something of a message which says, you witnessed it, you experienced it, and I am the one that took you out of it. So therefore, it's an undeniable fact. So if we want to talk about the idea of all the stories of the book of, Ex- of, of Genesis, more refer to the, the ideas of belief. While the ideas that are mentioned in the book of Exodus are factual, are reality, are things that they live through. And therefore, when we talk about God basing his belief in God, God says, listen here, you have a more factual, realistic way of believing in God because you experienced it. It's not about hearsay. Another uh, interesting anecdote on this idea is when we talk about at the end of the Torah, if you look at the words at the end of the Torah, the Torah concludes by the fact, by saying and all the great miracles that God has done to the Jewish people that he sent Moses to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and all the servants that he did in front of Moses and all the Jewish people. What does the Torah begin with? God created the heaven and earth. Someone who explain and say, if you see what the Torah is telling us, is it concludes with the miracles that God has done for the Jewish people when they left Egypt. Because when somebody has concrete belief and recognizes what God has done for the Jewish people when they left Egypt, and that intensifies and helps them believe that God created the heaven and earth. So you see the beginning and the end are really intertwined and connected because the understanding and the realization and seeing the miracles that God has done for the Jewish people when they left Egypt helps them appreciate the creation of heaven and earth that God created the universe. But brings us back to our question, which is, why did God start the Torah with the creation of the universe? He should have started with the first mitzvah. If the Torah is all about what we've witnessed, what we experienced, and seeing the mitzvahs and our belief in God is about what had factually happened to us, then start with, with the Jewish people in Egypt. Why do we need these 12 sections that we just read in the book of Genesis? And at that point, we look at Rashi and Nachmanides' answers when they tell us, when they ask this question. And Rashi begins by telling us is that the book of Genesis 
is something which is telling us something more than just a geographic location about who created the universe. But in fact, the Torah is dealing with something that the book of Genesis is revealing that not only the uniqueness of the Jewish people, not only the uniqueness of God's relationship with the Jewish people, but also that God has given a land that belongs to the Jewish people. The book of Genesis is telling us that not only did God choose the Jewish people to give them the Torah, not only did God choose the Jewish people as His nation, as a chosen nation, but He also chose for them a unique property, a unique land, and He gave this uniquely to the Jewish people, that it's different than every other parcel of land in the universe. If we look at the entire book of Genesis, it has a common theme. The common theme that is throughout the book of Genesis, from the beginning to the end, is telling us about a family who was sent to the universe, who was sent to this world, a family who was chosen by God to be in a specific location at a specific time, and for them God has chosen a specific thing. What is it telling us? The beginning of the book of Genesis tells us that God created the universe. And everything that's in the world belongs to God. And then it tells us about Noah and the flood, and he survived the flood. The people then were spread out because of the Tower of Bubble and spread, through, and spread throughout the world. And they denied in God's existence, and because of that, God scattered them throughout the universe. And all of a sudden comes about an individual by the name of Abraham, who the entire universe believes in pagans, idolatry, and everything else, and he believes in God. And God tells him, it's to you that I've given the land of Canaan. It's to your children who are conquered the land, who will this land will be given to them. And goes on to continue, not only to Abraham, but not to Abraham and two children, but not to Ishmael was given to Isaac. And Isaac had two children and not to Esau, but it was given to Jacob and to Jacob and his children and they populate the land. And again and again, the blessings that are given to the Jewish people, but not only to the Jewish people, but showing what land they will populate. What land was given to them as a blessing? What land was going to be theirs? Regardless of what's going to happen to them throughout the generations. Though God tells them that there will be a time, that there will be, that there'll be a strangers in a foreign land. For 400 years they'll be in a foreign land. They might not be on their land. But the land will always be theirs. So Rashi tells us, why did God begin with the beginning of the creation of the earth, of the universe, of the heaven and earth? To tell us about the greatness of the Jewish people, to tell us that there are going to be nations of the universe that are coming to come along. And they're going to say, well, this land doesn't belong to you. You're robbers, you're thieves. This land is not yours. Comes God and says, I created the heaven and earth, and I'm the one that decided that this parcel of land, the land of Israel, belongs to the Jewish people. What's he coming to tell us here? As the commentators of Rashi come to explain, there are many different generations that come and make God upset, if you want to call it, of the story of Noah or other generations of people who are full of idolatry. Abraham comes to discover godliness. And therefore God tells Abraham, you are the one that's going to get the land of Israel. Meaning when the Jewish people come about and the exodus of Egypt happens and God gives them the mitzvah of the first mitzvah that he gives them, why did God have to tell us the whole story? Because he says, you know why they ended in the land of Egypt? Because ultimately they have to be in the land of Israel. I said they're going to get the land of Israel. But there had to be some type of journey for them to get there. Therefore, I'm telling you the lead up to this mitzvah. 
Where did we get this mitzvah from? It's only because of 12 sections of the Torah readings that I've given you until now. What do we see from here? That because of this, we were never sent away. We never lost our identity of the land of Israel. The land of Israel was never taken away from us. We were only returned to a place that we were initially and destined meant to be there. In the spiritual sense, what makes the land of Israel a holy place? What makes it so unique and qualifying for what it is? Is because the land of Israel is holy in its own inherent value. And therefore the land of Israel is unique by this fact that it's not a political land, it's not a land that can be given or taken away to the Jewish people by any type of entity or country. It's not a land, a nation that automatically only belongs to the people that live there. That means a Jew living in Africa, Tasmania, Australia, the land of Israel belongs to them as well. It's not a land that can be conquered, that today it's been taken away, tomorrow it's not. It's a land that stays the way it is, it's static. It was chosen by the owner of the universe, by the creator of the universe, and given to his chosen nation. So for now we look back to our original question. We didn't take anything from the Arabs. Yes, we've gone through tumultuous times. Yes, there were times that for 2,000 years that we were exiled from our land. And we weren't able to live in our own home. But that doesn't make it not ours. Just because it's my home and somebody kicked me out of my house, does that now not be my house? Just because somebody did an injustice to me 2,000 years ago, 5 years ago, 10 years ago, does that make it right? Something that's wrong will stay wrong and something that's right will stay right. The fact that somebody took away my home doesn't mean that it's not my home anymore. Because you're a squatter doesn't make it my home. The land of Israel never became the Arabs because it was always the Jewish homeland from 3,000 years ago when God gave it to Abraham. They were merely squatters for a while. Finally, we got the squatters out, so we got our home back. Just because somebody was squatting there doesn't make it down theirs. It was always ours. And it will always be ours, no matter what happens. So yes, I left, and therefore you moved in when I left. That doesn't make it yours. It's not a land that can be conquered. Fascinating story. In 1936, when they started having the uprisings in Israel, then called Palestine, against the Jewish people, the British sent a, an investigation to see what was going on, you know, to try to sort things out between the Jews and the Arabs. And they sent a fellow by the name called Lord, Phil, Lord Philip. And he should try to see who's the wrong and who's guilty and who had to try to organize things amongst the people that were there. So they all sat down. The council of all the genius people come to sit down to figure this out in Jerusalem and in the British police station. And they were going to listen from all the leaders of the communities of what their complaints and excuses are for what's happening in the land of Israel. And at the time, they had the Jewish people there, the Jewish representative, the Muslim representative, the Christian representative, all sitting there at the same time. And each one of them had, of course, they had to swear that their testimony is correct. So the Jewish people swore in the Torah, and there was the Christian Bible, and there was the Quran that was all sitting there on the table as well. And they're having this whole back and forth Towards the end of the meeting, who went up to give testimony from the Jewish people was David Ben-Gurion, who was then at the time the head of the Jewish committee. 
Ben-Gurion got up and gave this whole long speech about the history of the Jewish people and how the nation and the land, how it belongs to the Jewish people, and back and forth and the connection, the star connection of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. At the end of his speech, the head of the committee, the head of the meeting, asks Ben-Gurion, where were you born? So he goes, Polotsk. He says, where is Polotsk? He says, Poland. So Lord Phil says in front of everybody, I just said, I don't understand. Most of the Jewish people that got up here to give testimony, almost none of them were born here. While meanwhile, the Muslims, the Christians, they were all born here. They were seemingly, it looks like theirs. Where is your document? Where is your deed to say that this should belong to you? You don't. Well, what's your right? To the land, you were born in Poland, thou was born in Russia. What's your deed that this land should belong to you? Ben-Gurion gets up in a strong, tough voice and he says, You want to know what our deed is? All these books that you just swore on, that you're saying right testimony. The Torah, that's our deed that the land of Israel belongs to us. A person can come along and say, Well, these are all nice spiritual ideas. What's convincing the idea is at the end of the day, the most convincing proof that the land of Israel belongs to the Jewish people is because it says it in the Torah. Because the Torah is an accepted book by any nationality, by any religion, knows that the Torah is valid. And what it says in the Torah is respected by every single nation of the world, especially amongst religious people. Not only that, the Torah is what all their Bibles are based on. And in their Bibles it says that the land of Israel belongs to the Jewish people. So any person who comes up with a debate and says, well, this is a religious argument, really understands, just has to look at the determination that the Jewish people have and the sincere right that the Jewish people have to the land of Israel. With this we understand the unique quality that the land of Israel has and why it's different than every other land that exists in the universe. It's by the very fact, not only because the Torah tells us and the Torah says this land is ours, but also reality, facts on the ground. The facts on the ground are that the land of Israel has a uniqueness that there's no other country can claim. What is that? Something very interesting, that even a non-Jew, even a person on the outside can see. The land of Israel never forgot us, the Jewish people, and we, the Jewish people, never forgot it. Let's talk about never forgot us for a moment. The land of Israel, if you look, is why is the whole world going so crazy about the land of Israel? It's this tiny little parcel, you know, look to Saudi Arabia, to all the other countries that are there, have millions and millions of miles of land, and the land of Israel, everybody's fighting over or watching and all the attention is source. Number one is because of its strategic placement, where it is. It connects three continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. So all of a sudden, everybody, every empire, if you think about it, in the, in the past history of the world, Napoleon wanted to conquer Israel, and he felt that that was his gateway to the universe. Alexander the Great conquered Israel, that was his gateway to be able to conquer in other places. Nebuchadnezzar, Sancher, you name a superpower of the world, wanted to conquer Israel, and felt that was their gateway to the universe, to be able to conquer in the world. Even most recently, 
Hitler wanted his whole objective was ultimately also to get to Israel and use that as well. And because of that, you can imagine that no nation of the world likes the fact that the Jewish people are now there. That's a separate issue. But even more so, even when all these other countries and all these other nationalities conquered Israel, whether it was the Romans, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Assyrians, you name it, the British, the Turks, the Armenians, the, the land of Israel was desolate. There was, no, there was nothing there. All of a sudden, when the Jewish people came there just a few hundred, just about a hundred years ago when they started doing agriculture, all of a sudden they became an economic superpower. With all the different, today in technology, but even just merely the grass that's been growing there. You look at the pictures of Israel a hundred years ago and to what it is today. It's just the greenery looks different. When it was under Jewish rule, under Jewish governorship, and Jewish people living there, the land blossomed. There's no denying it. You just look at it. Rabbi Akiva talks about it when he was a sage of the Talmud and he was walking with the sages, going by Mount, Temple Mount, and he saw a fox walking out of Temple Mount to the place of the Holy of Holies. And the sages started crying while Rabbi Akiva started laughing. And they asked Rabbi Akiva, why are you laughing? And the commentator in the Talmud explains, Rabbi Akiva told the students and says, look, there's a fox coming out of the Temple Mount. They are trying to make the Temple Mount a holy place. They're trying to build something. What do the Romans want to build on the Temple Mount? They wanted to destroy Jerusalem and build on it Ilia Capitoluna, make a beautiful monument of their capital. Nothing worked. The Christians tried making their religion there. Nothing worked. They couldn't use it for anything. Rabbi Akiva laughed and he said, Look, the Romans are trying to use it, but God said, It's not going to work for you. If you look in the book of Leviticus, Nachmanides points out, when God tells the Jewish people that part of the consequences and punishments of the Jewish people for not following the Torah that will ruin their land, he'll kick them out of the land, and the land will stay desolate. Yes, they'll stay desolate. As long as the enemies of the Jewish people will be in the land, it will be desolate. The moment the Jewish people will have it, it will blossom again. When we received the land, the way the land was, was destroyed. Even just recently, a Jew you had, look at just Gaza, take for example. The Jewish people, when they lived in Gaza just over 15 years ago, Gush Katif, a guy said, a Jewish guy said, when he, before he left Gaza, he sold his greenhouse to an Arab guy. So he sold it, and after a while, he finds out, you know, like ten, five years later, a few years later, he calls up the guy, how's my greenhouse going? He says, your greenhouse? Destroyed. He says, what do you mean destroyed? He says, every day I'm davening that you come back. I'm praying you come back, because without you guys, there's no blessing here. The whole thing went kaput. The same way the land of Israel didn't forget about us, we, the Jewish people, never forgot about the land of Israel. You find me. One nation in the world, or one people in the world, one nationality that left its land and for the last 2,000 years constantly is obsessed with mentioning it. What do I mean by that? Ever since the Jewish people left the land of Israel, look in our prayers. Every single day, three times a day, we mention at least four times in the prayers, to Jerusalem, I'll return. To Zion, I'll return. In our bench, when we do the grace after meals, and build Jerusalem. Constantly. 
Jerusalem, a land of Israel, is in our mind. We've never forgotten it as much as we've been exiled from it. How all of a sudden we've never stopped thinking about Jerusalem. The same way Israel didn't forget about us, we never forget about Israel. There's a story they say, at least it's brought down in some type of, uh, it's, a, it's some book about Roger Kemnitz writes it down. 34 years ago, 1989, the, uh, there was an interesting meeting in Egypt with the Dalai Lama, the head of Buddhism in Tibet. He had millions of followers. And he once asked a group of rabbis from America, and he says, I'm trying to understand something. How did the Jewish people survive? He says, I'm just looking at my community, my flock. Ever since we've been exiled from China and we've been struggling, we don't have a homeland. It's just going down, 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 down. No, I don't have that many people anymore. The young people are not interested. What's going on? How do we, uh, how do we manage to keep up? How did you guys survive 2,000 years without a homeland? What they answered, I have no idea. But what the answer probably we can look at is, is because we never left our homeland. And we may not be there physically, but in our minds and our hearts, Jerusalem went with us wherever we went. In every single prayer, in every single moment, times of the year as fasting as Napoleon said, once Napoleon walked into a synagogue on Tisha B'av, and he walked in and he sees, I think it was Napoleon they say, that he walked into a synagogue in Tishabov and he sees a fellow there, the lights are dim, and he sees somebody crying and crying and crying. So he asks another Jewish guy, what's this guy crying about? So he says, today is the saddest day of the year, that we're crying about the destruction of the temple. So he asks him, how long ago did the temple destroy it? He says, 2,000 years ago, almost, you know, 1,900 years ago. He goes, a nation that's still crying for something like this for 1,900 years eventually will be back. What does that mean? Because we never forgot about it. We never forgot about it. We never left there. It's not that when we left and we're coming back. We were always there. We just so happened to be there. Physically, we couldn't be there for a certain amount of time. With this, we now understand uh, what Rashi was telling us. That the land of Israel, by definition, inherently, is different than every other nation in the world, and every other nation in the universe. The land of Israel, by the way it is, the way God created it, the way God gave it to the Jewish people is different. Because it's a very good question that many can ask, especially that Rashi says. Rashi says in the beginning of the book of Genesis, as we mentioned before, that many people, that the nations of the world will say, you conquered it, why is this nation yours? And God says, I gave it to the Jewish people. And the question is very obvious that people can ask. First of all, the question is, why does Rashi even have to address what the nations of the world may say? Do we really care what they have to say? But what's Rashi really asking here is that in every generation there are nations that conquer other countries. And those countries become theirs ultimately. What Rashi's question and what Rashi's posing of here the nations of the world are asking is why is the land of Israel so different inherently? What makes it uniquely quality? That means how are you the Jewish people, how are you able to have such a land that essentially, in its essence, in its core, is different. It has this unique quality. That no nation can conquer it. People can be squatters, but cannot be conquered. Why is it that the land of Israel has this unique quality? That it's not like all the other countries of the world where nations can conquer it in the way it may be. That the land of Israel will always uniquely be the quality of the Jewish people. And what does Rashi say? 
Because God created the heaven and earth. And when creating the heaven and earth and creating the universe, he said, I'm going to take one land and make it unique. I'm going to make it that this land is a spiritual oasis. This land has an oasis, as a unique land that cannot be conquered. It belongs to a certain people for eternity. No matter what comes and what goes, whether they're there or not, it always belongs there to them. And this is because the nations of the world, what Rashi is telling us over here is that the nations of the world realize the greatness of the land of Israel, realize its inherent quality that the Jewish people have. And therefore they're asking, how did you do this? How did it happen? But why this land? Why did God choose this land to make his palace? Why did God choose that this land of Israel should be the palace of the Jewish people? That this should be the place that the Jewish people should desire, want? Why not someplace, maybe there's better oil or better agriculture, or better resources? Why not Siberia? Why not China? Why this land? Why this little parcel of land did God choose that this should be the place for the Jewish people to long for and to always want to be there and should be the center of attention of the universe? And this in the book of Deuteronomy, the Torah tells us very clearly. He says, the land that you're coming to, Moshe tells the Jewish people, is not like the land of Egypt that you plant and the Nile River just gives it its water. It's a land that you need to ask God for rain. It's a land that God is constantly watching it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. The land of Israel is so unique that it's vulnerable. It's dependent. You see that it cannot be on its own. The land of Israel is so unique. And what is the strength and the unique strength of the land of Israel? Is that it always needs to recognize that it's dependent on God's blessing. Without God's blessings, it doesn't exist. I actually just saw this fascinating um, um, video of a guy, not a religious guy from Israel, talking about after October 7th, why he says, what was the most bought item in Israel after October 7th? What was the most bought item in Israel? Off the shelf, you couldn't find any. For months, for weeks, whatever it may be. Was tzitzis. Tzitzis, peers of tzitzis. He says, what is it that all of a sudden Jewish people are attacked and the item that you can't buy anymore, all of a sudden everybody's embracing God, everybody's embracing something, they want to do something more Jewish. And everybody's wearing tzitzis, the most secular person's wearing tzitzis. They want to do something Jewish. What is it? And this guy, he's not religious himself, he says, I'm a believer. He says, what's, what I think it is, is because every Jew knows Living in the land of Israel is a miracle. We wouldn't be there if not for the miracle of God. And all of a sudden, you live life, and sometimes you get a little too complacent, and the miracle, so to speak, fades. It's like, and all of a sudden, God gives you a jolt, and all of a sudden, we all wake up and say, this is a miracle, I have to identify with my belief, I have to identify with the core essence. What brings me here? What allows me to be here? The land of Israel, the way God made it, is that we are always dependent on rain, which means we always have to think about God. Look around all the different countries that are around Israel. Every single one of them. 
Egypt has the Nile River it gets its water from. Lebanon is on a high up, so therefore they're getting from the mountains of snow. Syria is getting from the uh, another the Euphrates River. The lands, and then you go a little further, let's say the Arab lands, let's say Saudi Arabia, Iran, that's desert, nothing grows there. But anything where there is agriculture has a natural source of water, which doesn't solely depend on rain. Israel is the only agriculture area where it grows agricultural stuff, but depends on rain. Why is that? Because God is telling you. A person doesn't have the ability to live in Israel and think he's got it all. We, are, we understand it all. The very fact that you live in Israel, you know that by virtue you're a miracle. Why did God do that? So they say a little anecdote, story, to be able to bring out the point. He says, once there was a king who had two ministers. I think I said this once before, but it's a good one anyway. Um, he had two ministers. And these two ministers did something which you would call probably would keep them in the category of traitors. And you would have to punish them. But these two ministers were really good friends of the king. But he had to punish them because they did a terrible act of treason. So what does he do? One minister he gives, says, here's $10 million, go to the other side of the world, I don't want to see you again. The other one he says, every single month, you have to come to me, and I'll pay for your expenses. You're not getting a salary, but you have to get everything you have. You're going to depend on me. You're going to have to come ask me. So the two ministers had a debate. Which one does the king like better? Which one got a better deal? The one guy says, I get $10 million. I'm living on the other side of the universe. I don't have to come ask the king every month for something. He says, no, 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 no. The king, the man, means doesn't want to see you. Therefore, he sent you to the other side of the universe. Don't bother me. Here's a pension. Get out of here. I don't want to see you again. Me, the king, wants to see at least once a month. So therefore, he tells me, you got to come back. The Jewish people as well. God wants to see us. He wants to have that relationship. And because of that, he gave us a land that there's no other way for us to live in it without recognizing that miracle and constantly asking God for safety and for security and for, all this, and for the realizing the dependence that we have in God. What we see from here ultimately is that all the nations of the world can see, and you can go how every single nation lives and so on. And the Jewish people can be in all different nations as well, in all different worlds, in all different lands. But what is our land? Where do we see our success? Where do we see the flourishing, the greatness of the Jewish people is in the land of Israel. Because of that, as we know, with every obligation, with every merit, comes an obligation. Because of the unique quality of the land of Israel, that the land of Israel demands that we should recognize God's constant, watchful eye, we also have an obligation to recognize that and behave accordingly. And to always remember the miracle that we're living in and remember that we are constantly under that beautiful, miraculous watch of God and that's the only way we can succeed. With this we go, the Nachmanides has a, brings another explanation about this idea as well. Nachmanides puts it this way, and he says, Nachmanides, when he asks the same question, why is it, what's the purpose of mentioning all the different stories in this week's Torah, in the Torah readings of the, the first 12 Torah readings of the book of Genesis? Starting with the creation of the universe, to Abraham and Sarah going down to Egypt, Sarah taking it to the king, then going back to Isaac, to Jacob, Leah, Je uh, Joseph, all the different stories that are mentioned there. Nachmanides says a fascinating thing. And he says, anything that happened to our forefathers is a sign and strength 
for the future generations. And he tells us that the entire book of Genesis, talking about our forefathers and the patriarchs and the matriarchs, are there all to teach us lessons of how we need to behave when we're wherever we may be. How we have to act amongst the nations, what our obligations are, and how we have to have that unique holding quality that we may be. What Nachmanides and Sarah is telling us, that if you look at the entire book of Genesis, tells us the unique quality of the Jewish people. The quality of the Jewish people is that we're not a religion, because there are many people that are Jewish and that are not religious. We're not a nation because there are people, there are Jewish people that live in Australia, Russia, America, and every other place. So what are we? What is the Jewish people? We're a family. And in a family, what is in a family? A family has traditions. And how does a family get those traditions? From what the previous members in the family did. What the matriarchs and the patriarchs of the family did. And that's why if you look at the quality of what we call Abram, Isaac, Jacob, Leah, Rivka, Sarah, what are they called? The patriarchs and the matriarchs. The father and the mother. Because they were the ones that gave us and made us who we are. Like in a family. They give us the strength, the ability to be able to do what we are doing today. The patriarchs and the matriarchs of, our, of the Jewish people is what gave the Jewish people today the steadfast commitment to the Torah, the mitzvahs, to what we're able to do. What is a Jew? A Jew is this unique quality that he belongs to this family that holds on to these values and these traditions of our Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of the patriarchs and the matriarchs. The Jewish people have this unique quality that wherever they go, no matter what they do, no matter what type of work, no matter what type of place they live in, they have this unique quality. They have this feeling of purpose, of a need to exist. There's always going to be an undercurrent bother of why am I here, what am I doing? Some people want to call that Jewish guilt. But at the same time, there's something here that I was put into this world, not just to wake up in the morning, or as the American saying is, today we drink, tomorrow we die, whatever way, drink, uh, what is it, uh, eat, drink, and for tomorrow we die, right? Eat, drink, and be happy because tomorrow you die. That's not what Jewish people are about. We realize that we have a mission in this world. Who gave us a purpose? Who gives us the understanding that there's a mission is what when we read the entire books of, Je- of the books of Genesis. We read the entire stories of these 12 sections. All the way leading up into the story of Joseph that we read two weeks ago. When Joseph is about to be seduced by the wife of Potiphar. And what does he see? The image of his father. And he says, I can't do this. What is his father telling him? His father was showing him and explaining to him and saying, look, you belong to a long chain of tradition. You can't just break it up here. Joseph and nobody would know what he would do. But all of a sudden he remembered, I'm part of the family. Every entire book of Genesis, from the beginning when it talks about the creation of the world, all the way until the end of this week's Torah reading, talking about how Jacob gives a message, his last will and testament of the Jewish people, telling them Shema Yisrael when he meets his son Joseph, and he hugs him and embraces him and says the word Shema Yisrael, he's telling the Jewish people, you have an obligation, you have a tradition to carry on, you're part of a family, you can't just let it go. And that's telling every single one of us. The book of Genesis is reminding us. We are all part of a family. What's the best and greatest thing for a family? When we sit together and we enjoy our family life. 
The land of Israel gives us that ability to recognize that we're a family. And that's why the unique character of the Jewish people is that automatically, when there's a Jew hurting in one place, there's a Jew feeling it in another place. What was that study that just came out last week? That ever since the war in Israel on October 7th, $1 billion world Jewry gave to Israel. Imagine that. Do you see that by any other nation of the world, even for the people that are screaming about Palestine? ever see them go and care about the Palestinians? What do we see from here? But we see the unique quality is that as we are the Jewish family, we are the Jewish people, the book of Genesis reminds us that we have the ability to pass it on from one generation to the next generation, but even more so to recognize the unique quality that we have as the Jewish family. As Jacob tells his children right before his passing, as Joseph celebrates it with his brothers when they come to the land of Egypt, even though they were not in their land, they were not in the land of Israel, they were in the land of Egypt, but they recognize that ultimately, as Joseph tells the Jewish people right before he passes, God is going to remember you and he's going to take you out of the land of Egypt, bring you to the land of Israel. But make sure to take my bones out with me. Meaning, remember, stay connected to the family. Remember the words in Atmos, not only means bones, but also means the essence. The essence of the Jew is when we're connected, recognize where we come from, because the power of the forefathers, what they instilled within us, is what gives us the strength, the impetus for us to continue on that mission, until we're all reunited once again in the Holy Land, with that, with peacefully, happily, and no more wars and suffering to bring about the coming of Moshiach, maybe now, Amen.